Hello and welcome to Living the Present Moment with Dr. Joel Ying. This episode is recorded Thursday, January 3rd, 2019. Happy New Year. On this series, I interview people of passion and purpose, doing interesting things, living the present moment. I'm your host, Dr. Joel Ying. You can find me online at livingthepresentmoment.com. Today's topic is storytelling as medicine, and my guest today is Karen Neal. Karen is an affiliate professor at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton, and she specializes in storytelling studies. She performs, teaches, and she's a radio host. She's multi-talented. She's a former member of Healing Story Alliance at the National Storytelling Network. Now, when I tell people I'm a storyteller, their ears perk up. I tell them it's my professional hobby, and they still don't know what I mean. And they always ask, well, what's that? And how'd you become a storyteller? So I thought I'd start with that question. I'm curious how you became a storyteller. Well, I guess uh, people ask you the difficult questions. And so you've turned it around and asked somebody else. Uh, (laughs) And that's as it should be. Everything I've done in my life has brought me to this career. And it's something that I tell students all the time. You may not be sure when you're a teacher. You may not be sure when you're a writer. You may not be sure when you've done a thousand different things. But Uh, my uh, classes in acting, my PhD, my uh, MFA in creative writing, my uh, teaching in in different areas, uh, public speaking. I've been been doing that for years and years. Even my teaching of yoga contributes to my storytelling. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had been a storyteller really my whole life without knowing it. In fact, I met people about 10 years ago, a group of people I had known when I was a teenager, which was a long time ago. And when I told them I was a storyteller, they laughed. They said, of course, well, you've always done that. If we had to guess what you did in your career, if we knew that was a career, we'd think you were a storyteller. So I told stories uh, as a babysitter. I told stories to my friends. I wrote stories a lot. And it just was a natural evolution. I just didn't know it was a profession until I started exploring the work of Spalding Gray, the great late uh, actor-storyteller. And then more and more, when I was researching what he was doing and researching people who called themselves professional storytellers, I realized that this was exactly where I needed to be. So it was sort of the life path that got laid out before you and yeah, but not, yes, but not a linear path. What was it about storytelling as a performance art that captured you? Well, storytelling as a performance art is so much more immediate. You know, having been a writer professionally and as an amateur for myself for so many years, I mean, as long as I can remember, whether I wrote for television or I wrote for newspapers, magazines, whatever, uh, it, it, there is a gatekeeper who decides, you know, an editor who decides whether that uh, he or she wants to take what you write. There is a gatekeeper being an audience who decides whether or not they're going to pick up that piece of writing. And you never get to see the person who is making the decision. You never get to see 
the person who's reading what you wrote. And, you know, you may have changed, I may have changed my mind, uh, an author may have passed away, you know, and it's not a conversation in the way that performance storytelling is. And I, and I don't mean conversation literally that it's an interview or that I want my, my audiences necessarily to respond to everything I say verbally, but it is a conversation nonetheless. And I certainly make it a point to media audience members before the show, to talk to them after shows, and also to motivate them, hopefully to invite them to uh, speak a little bit during the show as well. Mm. And that I find very, very uh, useful and satisfying. When I can see somebody's input from their eyes, from whether or not they're looking at their watch, from their, uh, how, how much they're leaning forward, their gestures, as, as well as their posture, their facial expression, I can really tell whether or not I'm communicating in a way that I just can't when I'm writing. I love that you call it a conversation. For me, it's that connection also that, that captures me and captivates me and makes me want to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, speaking of the difficult questions, you remind me as I <laughs> thought about it. The other difficult question that I get uh, from people is, what is storytelling and what's a story? And I was curious because I'm struggling for a definition. How do you define it? Well, I use a definition by the great coach and storyteller, um, Doug Lipman. He pulled together a definition that I use when I teach college students and I use it in workshops. And for me, it's very useful. And I start off telling students or anybody, I start off by saying, look, I don't own the word storytelling. The National Storytelling Network, of which I am a former chair, did not, does not own the word storytelling. And people can use storytelling to mean everything from lying to uh, writing screenplays to writing novels. Even I have seen filmmakers, film directors call themselves storytellers. I, I have seen people think that composing classical music composition is a form of storytelling. And I'm not mm. going to argue with any of that. Anything you want to call storytelling, you're allowed to. What professional performance storytellers mean, though, is a five-point definition. And then I'll go back to the word story. But first, I'll start with, start with the definition of storytelling. By storytelling, what most performance storytellers mean is something that an, an activity that includes words. So, for example... Hula dancers may say the hands tell the story. Well, that's fine. But performance storytellers who are professional storytellers generally work in words. We may add to that. Of course we do. We add gestures. We add nonverbal communication. We add all kinds of things. But the basis of it is words. That's got to be the case. Absolutely. And then along with that, we uh, say uh, interaction. And interaction is that communication. So yes, writing a story is using story, but professional performance storytellers don't necessarily think of that as storytelling. 
right? It's story writing. Right. Uh, so there is some form of interaction. Seeing, you know, even when you're doing a video, you'll notice that when you're watching a, a video of a storyteller, you'll notice they usually will have an audience present. Because that interaction, as you and I have already discussed, is so important to the success of the activity. The third point he talks about is nonverbal communication. And that is what I've talked about, the gestures, that is the uh, eye contact, that is the facial expressions. That's called kinesthetics. The, or, or as you know, or or um, there's another term as well, but normally it's called uh, kinesthetics. And uh, then there's also paralinguistics, which is the volume, the rate of speech, the tone of your speech, whether you're using an accent. That is not the content of your speech, but it is nonverbal communication. And that's really important. And then there is something that is called uh, proxemics, uh, based uh, the same basis as the word, same root as the word proximity, your use of space. Uh, there is a child who is still stuck to the ceiling of a library in my town after 10 years when I told him a ghost story. And he jumped so high because I touched him when I said, gotcha. He jumped so high, and he had some hair tonic on, and he's still stuck to the ceiling there. It's terrible. <laughs> and then there is um, a narrative, of course, which is really, really important. Uh, narrative isn't just words. You know, somebody will say, what's your story? And what they mean is, how are you doing today? Well, a narrative is a sequence. And it's a connection causality. Somebody once said, a great, a great critic once said uh, that, uh, how did he put it? I forget exactly the nouns that he used at this moment. But the gist of it was, if you say the king died and the queen died, those are two statements. But if you say the king died, I'm, I'm misquoting him slightly, but he did say the king died and the queen died. But if you say the king died and the queen died of grief, that's a plot, right? That's narrative. Mm -hmm. There is causality there. Um, mm -hmm. With the first example, the king died, the queen died, the queen could have died first. doesn't make any difference. But the queen's not going to die of grief unless the king dies, right? Mm -hmm. right. So we have that. Uh, we have that difference and that's what makes narrative there's more to it of course there's characters and etc but we'll talk about that when I talk about story and then finally perhaps the most important element is imagination we would like to think that our journalists use and I'm, we're not going to get into that conversation today but we would <laughs> like to think that we use a minimal amount of imagination. I mean, anybody talking, anybody living, any human being uses imagination, whether they know it or not, by putting things together in a certain way. They use their creativity and imagination. But storytelling, it's, it's uh, part of our stock and trade. So we use imagination as well. Mm. Now, if you want to ask me what a story is, do you still want me to answer that? I gave you a very long answer to storytelling. <laughs> no, I'd love your you, answer. To I'll give you a much shorter one to story. <clears throat> what I would say a story is, 
is a cultural product that includes characters, that includes action, that includes setting, that includes a surprise of some sort, a transformation of some sort, and the surprise and the transformation, generally, at least in, in Western terms, I mean, there's different definitions of stories throughout the world, but in Western terms, they come from the solution to a conflict. Now, when I say conflict, uh, some linguists call it complicating action. And what I mean by that is not, it, it doesn't have to be Game of Thrones type conflict. It could be an itch that needs to be scratched, a question that needs to be answered, uh, a quest that needs to be resolved in some way. And the last thing I would add to all of this is emotion is a precious and invaluable piece of, of the activity of story. Story, or rather the product of story, that is story. Story needs uh, some kind of, of reaction, emotional reaction, in order to really be effective. It needs to elicit an emotional reaction. Oh, now that definition. reaction could be, it could be laughter. It could be a, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's me. It could be identification in that way. Uh, there are many. Now, I could go on with the definition, but I think that, that kind of does it, at least for me. I hope that does it for you. Well, that's a really good one. covers quite a bit of territory. I'm curious what you mean by cultural product or why you use that term. Well, really, it's a bit of a, of a misnomer. I mean, cultural product really means, it's really the term we use for folklore, that it comes from a group. But frankly, even an, my individual story that I make up, it, and, I, and most storytellers, as you know uh, well, do not generally, professional storytellers don't tell stories completely from their own heads very often. Of all the stories I tell, I tell one from my own head, but it is based on a type of folktale, on a genre, uh, and, a, and a kind of a particular kind of folktale from a particular place. Uh, but even when we're telling our own stories or writing our own stories, they come from somewhere. We know the form, the form that I just expressed to you. We know that from our culture. It isn't something totally made of whole cloth. Everything we do is in some way a cultural product. So it is something, it is, it is not something found in nature, in other words. It is something that people have created. A story does not exist in nature. That's all I, I mean by that. And, of course, with a folktale, it's much more of a cultural product because there are variants in every culture of the same folktale. Right, right. Oh. I um, know I do get a little specific, but uh, you can cut me no, off but, at any time. <laughs> uh, how, how did you um, come to Storytelling as Medicine as the title for this topic? Or this interview, well, rather. Listen, it's a, I have to say it's a little bit selfish. I don't often get a chance to talk to an MD. I, get, I talk to a lot of other PhDs. I don't often get a chance to talk to an MD about uh, storytelling. 
And I do have experience using storytelling as medicine, teaching about it, certainly reading about it, uh, and uh, learning about it. And I thought I would love to have, if, if this works for you, a bit of a back and forth. I'd love to hear what you think of my ideas and what I know, and I'd love to hear uh, a little bit more about what you know on the, on the topic as well. So storytelling in medicine always, as medicine always shocks people. Uh, the, uh, people who are not storytellers and don't know anything about storytelling um, other than mm-hmm. what most people know, you know, don't know anything about storytelling as a profession, I should say, or, or as an adjunct to another profession, uh, as a, what, what we would call a, um, oh, I've forgotten the term at this moment, but there's a, there's a term for an applica- a creative application. That's what, that's what we call it. But, uh, people think, what are you talking about? Storytelling, heals, give me a break. I've just gotten to the point where I'll accept that you can teach through storytelling. I don't believe storytelling can be business, <laughs> which of course it is. I don't believe, and I certainly don't believe storytelling will heal. So I use, I love to talk about that because it seems so ridiculous. And I, when I inter, introduce this topic, I always say, I'm not telling you to give up your blood pressure medication. I'm not telling you to take two stories and call me in the morning. I'm not that kind of doctor. And, you know, but there's really good science behind it. And when you tell people the science behind it, which I'm sure you know better than I do, then it's sort of people sort of feel a little bit more comfortable, I guess I would say. Mm. So it's interesting because it surprises Yes, I, I like I like the shock value of it as well. I also work with some of the Native American teachings with the medicine wheel, and and for me, one of the attractions to to the um, title when you said storytelling is medicine, I'm like oh yes, because I I also had to work with that definition when a doctor says medicine wheel, things go crazy. You know, your mind goes oh, what medicines are you going to give me? How are you going to spin your wheel? I don't know. And I, I tell them, <laughs> I tell them that in the Native American tradition, anything that heals the body, mind, or spirit is medicine, and, and that enlarges their definition of what medicine is. And and um, one of my favorite phrases from that tradition is finding your medicine, which means finding your gift that will heal the world. But it also means finding your gift because it will heal you. It's a spiritual healing. And, and I, I like that because it's also tells me about storytelling. Storytelling is something that is sort of one of my spiritual gifts. It's something that I found a lot of passion for and, and it's given me a lot of healing. So it's sort of my medicine. And I, I love that storytelling as medicine has so many meanings to it because we have applied storytelling we have the way in which storytelling heals the teller in uh, support groups when people tell their stories of experience, strength, and hope, and then how that impacts the listeners and the other people who sort of absorb that hope. There's so many ways that storytelling can be applied to, to a healing art. So I, I agree with you that it's a healing art, and, and, and I never thought about it, but I do love the shock value of storytelling as medicine, where people just pause for a moment. What do you mean? 
But then, of course, if you mention the shaman, shamanistic tradition, uh, then we mm. know that the shamans uh, did that all the time. And, uh, mm. it's, you know, it, it, and we are going back to some of these, as you know, again, better than I do, some of these time-tested therapies uh, over the last, I don't know how many years, it's become more and more acceptable to do, for example, yoga for health, to do herbs for health, to do, you know, there's so many things that maybe 50, 75 years ago people would not have accepted in this country. And this is just one more of those wonderful things that's been around forever, but we we didn't know about it. Hmm. Yeah, I was talking to a, a, another friend on an interview and she was, we were just going back and forth about storytelling and uh, uh, and I love what she said. She said, um, oh, that's your peace work. And I never thought about it that way. But it's my way of spreading peace. And I, I saw that you also do some uh, peace work in this way. And storytelling brings communities together. Well, actually, that was how I got onto the Healing Story Alliance in the first place. Oh. I had spoken to the then director of the National Storytelling uh, no, actually, at the time, he wasn't the director of the National Storytelling Network. He was the director of the International Storytelling Center, Jimmy Neal Smith, at the time when and I talked to him. This was about the year 2000, more or less. And I said, I would like to start something about storytelling and peace, a group or something on your website, because they were storytelling and healing, and there were some other things. And that, uh then he suggested that I talk to somebody at the Healing Story Alliance about how to start a special interest group for the National Storytelling Network, on which is the membership was the membership organization connected to the International Storytelling Center. And uh, I talked to them on the board at the Healing Story Alliance, and they said, peace is healing. Why start another organization? Join ours. And I thought, what a great idea. So I did a, mm-hmm. a big uh, page, number of pages on the uh, in, uh, International Storytelling Center's website and got very involved in the Healing Story Alliance. In fact, I had started an academic journal. Excuse me, I had to take a drink. I started an academic journal uh, with a number of people. Uh, when I was already on the board, and the second issue of that academic journal was focused on healing. It was an academic journal called Storytelling Health Society about storytelling studies. The second issue was focused on the needs of the Healing Story Alliance, which included, of course, uh, all different aspects of healing. So, yeah, peace and healing and storytelling, absolutely, they all go hand in hand. Mm. Yeah. One of the greatest examples, one of the greatest uses of storytelling and peace and healing I ever did was in the Arava, in the desert in the south of Israel. I was invited, I was there on, as a Fulbright senior specialist, this was about 10 years ago, and I worked at an institute called the Arava Institute, which is, uh, brings together peace the, and the environment 
uh, for Palestinians, for other uh, Arabs, for Israelis and anybody, any Europeans, Americans, etc. And I worked with a group. There must have been 50 people in the room. This was their ending event. This was toward the end of their their term and told a couple of stories and had them telling their own stories based on my stories. And here they had studied together, but they had never looked at each other in the eye in a small group and told their own story about something specific and so in, in that kind of a formal way. And mm-hmm. it was thrilling. It was absolutely thrilling work. Wow. And I hope that they're still doing that because I then did a training with their trainers and hopefully their trainers have been using storytelling. I, I wasn't able to carry through on that. I don't know whether that they are still doing it or not, but we had several days of workshop of training workshops. Hmm. I, I love the way that storytelling creates a community feeling in a room, no matter what kind of venue it is, whether it's a stage performance or whether you're telling in a circle or even if it's just, you know, one-on-one, but there's a sense of community that's created. And of course that is all, there is science behind all of that. Uh, That has to do with neural coupling. That has to do with uh, mirroring. That has to do with dopamine and cortex activity and all of those things. You know, I, I try to make the case and maybe I have, I overstate it as an artist. Maybe I feel uh, you know, uh, this is the Rodney Dangerfield of the arts. You know, we don't get a whole lot of respect sometimes, storytellers. Uh, 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 Although that's changing a little bit. But uh, thanks to the moth and thanks to other things, it's changing. But mm-hmm. just as the arts are not part of the STEM uh, educational initiatives, you know, we're not science, technology, uh, engineering, or math, uh, in that same way, Storytelling is not painting or music or drama, so I may have to protest a little too much about the science behind it, but there is really good reason that it works. That's very true. There's a a lot of science about connection that uh, is also true about storytelling, that, you know, the same connection happens. I have read, and I would love you to tell me the citation because I keep meaning to look again for it and have lost it, I believe, that studies were done quite a while back, and by quite a while, I mean maybe 10, 15 years back, on when nurses told stories to patients before surgery or or the, the patients told their story to the nurses that wound care was, uh, that that actually promoted wound, wound healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard that as well. I have, I have. I haven't looked up the citation either, but I had heard that as well. And if wound care is improved, and that is something that is so easy to measure, then it should, shouldn't be such a hard sell uh, to get people to understand why mood is lifted and why the identification that comes with story, the traveling and the journey in your mind's eye that comes with story can bring people together. Yeah, I heard one person cite the wound healing as one theory that they had was that it reduced the cortisol level, so that fight-or-flight response, basically, like you said, calming, calming effect of story. 
So it, it does have definite scientific study behind it, which is very cool, actually. Yeah, I mean, the more that we know as a society that there is a mind-body connection, the more this makes sense. And we do know, for example, that stress is a killer. I mean, I read that. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just picking up from headlines. But it seems like everything I pick up that has to do with health, the number one thing is decrease stress. Definitely stress is in the headlines. And I think there's another great shift in the stress research is also studying resilience. So the opposite side of that, like what, what helps people get through stress? what creates resilience, and, and I, uh, I recently saw that, uh, I forget who I saw, um, talking about that, and I, I really enjoyed turning that on its head. You know, we do so much research into stress, and to put some of that research into resilience and say, oh, what, what, creates, what creates a resilient personality? What creates a, a resilience to get you through trauma? What kind of things can we do? And I'm pretty sure storytelling is one of those things. Absolutely, for so many reasons. And I got to tell you, Joel, that when you said resilience at first, I thought you said Brazilians. And I have <laughs> my head, and this is how storytelling works too, my head went in this whole other connection. Oh, I know people who are Bra- Brazilian. I have to find out about that. And then I'm so glad you said it again. <laughs> but I think, I think I'm going to go with the Brazilians too. I think that's really... <laughs> But yes, resilience, and you laugh, and of course, laughter is one of those things, you know. And uh, we we have known from Norman Cousins many years ago, and those of his ilk, that it, laughter is a wonderful medicine. So why not storytelling? Very true. <laughs> I'm curious what the uh, Healing Story Alliance, like what kind of things did you... Oh explore with that? Well, one of the things that we set up was besides, of, of course, funding that issue of the of Storytelling Self Society, they had done well, well before I got there. Alison Cox and, and others had done a wonderful journal called Diving in the Moon. Uh, so they did a lot of work on interviewing people and people writing up their own experiences. There were a lot of therapists who were, who were involved in that and probably still are. I haven't been involved in it for quite a while, but uh, people would talk about their own experiences. People would talk about their own research. Uh, but besides those things, we also instituted during my uh, time on the board conference calls that were I can't think what the, what we called them, but the idea is that there would be another person. This was before the time of podcasts, but I think they mm-hmm. still do this. Uh, there would be somebody who knew something about something related to a healing story would be the guest speaker and would do an hour, and anybody who wanted to call in and listen, just conference call, would call in on the conference line, and anybody who was a member of the Healing Story Alliance would get the code and could listen in on these educational calls. And that was very useful. Also, they still have, I believe, special events, pre-conference events at the National Storytelling Network, 
uh, conferences. I'm pretty sure they still do that. And uh, there's just and, and of course information on their website, which is healingstory.org. This is again a special. This isn't an entity on its own. It is a special interest group of the National Storytelling Network. So members of the National Storytelling Network pay a little bit extra to be members of this group and get their information. Yeah. Well. Well, I do. Primarily, uh, I've been teaching at FAU uh, full-time or part-time since 2001, and I'm just about to start another semester. And so there's that. I also do a segment on public radio, uh, South Florida. Public radio goes to five counties. Uh, So it's about, I don't know, four million listeners or something. This show I used to think the show that I was on had 4 million listeners, and I used to tell people that. And then all of a sudden, the uh, the person I do it with, who is a full-time staff person of the the public radio station, said, no, actually, it's (laughs) 3,500 to (laughs) 4,000 listeners to this show. I said, oh, I'll take a a couple of zeros there. Uh, But Uh, this is a – it's actually a folk music show, but for the last nine or ten – nine years. I've had a segment on that where somebody from the area tells a story from his or her own life mm. about an experience in, in Florida. Uh, so we, and then I talk about it as the storyteller. I talk about it with my co-host, who is the host of the main three-hour show. This is just a small segment on that. And then I do a lot of uh, storytelling uh, in the Jewish community. I'm very involved in that. In fact, uh, just yesterday, uh, I was, I'm very proud to tell you, I was featured on the front page of the Jewish Journal, which is the largest uh, print free uh, paper, a print paper in the country for Jewish uh, readership. And they featured me on the front because I'm doing something at the at museum this month, uh, and I'm doing something for a genealogy group. And so they have a big picture of me, which is kind of – it's funny, but it's kind of nice. It's, it's very nice. <laughs> Great. And I do a lot of performance around the state. And I'm working on a book now called Only in Florida, where I'm collecting stories. I, in fact, I did an interview today. Speaking of healing story – I just came back from an interview with the most amazing 16-year-old girl, who, young woman, who right out, goes to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, which, of course, you know, last February 14th was the site of a terrible mass shooting. And she was so inspired by the therapy dog teams, uh, human and dog teams that came to help the students. And she said there must have been 100 that, those first days. She was so inspired by one woman in particular and and then by all the rest that she uh, trained her dog and was trained herself to to be a certified therapy team. So she and her little, this is a 16-year-old girl who has only been living here. She She only started at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in August, and she was telling me the story of how, of what it was like that day with the shooting. She was at school what it was like that day, and uh, her first days being a therapy dog handler. Wow, wow. And um, how people talk to the dogs, how the kids talk to the dogs. Hmm. 
And as long as somebody is listening, you know, I think of it, that as human beings is our number one priority. You know, we need to find meaning in our lives. And stories lead pretty much, uh, I guess you would say, almost naturally to meaning. Because if you believe that things that happen are just random, then it's very hard to establish a meaning for your life or for why things are the way they are. I think that's why uh, I think people who are religious get a lot of comfort from the fact that everything that happens has a meaning, right? And stories tell us that. Stories tell us one event follows another. The king dies, the queen dies of grief. It's not a, things just don't happen without our, without there being Mm -hmm. some reason for it. And I think human beings desperately, desperately need that. And I think that uh, that's one of the things that people were searching for after that school shooting. I think that that's what that gave her, that gave this young girl a, a, lot, of, a lot of hurt, a lot of fear, a lot of trauma, but it also gave her some, some real special meaning in her life. Mm. Yeah, I do find going back into my own stories and uh, just remembering them and then processing through them and then finding the connections and the meaning and uh, eventually finding some gift that makes me want to tell it as a story is such a rewarding process. So I, I can see how meaning is such a big piece of storytelling as well as a big piece of healing. The only thing that we as storytellers must remember in order to be responsible is that we can't give somebody else the meaning of our stories. And this is the hardest thing for my college students to grasp, not to say the moral of the story is. Because every audience member, even if they're the same age, even if they're in the same family, Every audience member has different experiences, has a different outlook. If I say, this is what my story is about, this is what you're supposed to get from my story, then what if they get something else? What are they, chopped liver? You know, I mean, what's the matter with their interpretation? Or they may feel, you're wrong. I don't respect you. I don't, I don't believe you because that's not what the story means. So why even say it? Now, that said, we must have some meaning for ourselves when we tell a story and we shape a story based on what the story means. Everybody does that, whether consciously or not. Storytellers, professional storytellers just hopefully do that consciously. But everybody shapes experience to what it means to them. And if I can shape it to what it means to me, hoping that what it means to me is going to have some meaning for you too, but I'm not going to hit you over the head with it by telling you because you still might get other things out of the story. And I don't want to tell you you're wrong. I do like that about folk tales and and any kind of story really that everyone can find something different about the same story and appreciate it. I, I, I struggled with that as well when I first started storytelling because I came from public speaking in Toastmasters giving speeches and in, in speeches, storytelling is a buzzword, but storytelling is a vehicle to get a point across in, in that art of public speaking. I arrived at the, 
the same place that you did. And actually, I, I realized that it's just sort of the intent. Am I here to tell a story or am I going to give a speech? And I need to just be clear in my own head. And, you know, it's funny that you say that because in the year 2000, I attended, I, I was also involved in Toastmasters and wrote for their magazine for many years and did some of their uh, international conventions. And um, very, it's a wonderful organization, although I'm not involved with it mm-hmm. currently. And in the year 2000, I attended the international a conference convention that was down in Miami because I live near near there, and the person who won his entire speech was a story. There was nothing but story in his speech, and most people use story either at the beginning to get people's attention or exactly like you just said to make a specific point and then you uh, elaborate on that point in your speech. Or sometimes people will use it for emotion or something, but it's not all that common for people to use a story as a speech. So he won the contest, this, this gentleman, and I, he was a journalist, and I went up to him afterwards to, to uh, congratulate him. And I said, you know, I am so glad that you ended the speech on the last line of the story rather than summing it up in an abstract way. You stayed concrete. We're with you the whole time from beginning to end in that we took that journey with you. You never stepped out of that journey to tell us what you were thinking or feeling or or what we were supposed to think and feel. And you know what he said? He said, I had a line that gave the meaning of the story, but I didn't get a chance to use it because my time was up and you know if you, uh, if you go seven minutes and 30 <laughs> seconds he would be he would have been disqualified if he'd given that sentence so I thought that was the most wonderful example of why it's better not to give a moral because he would have lost now that winning that contest that international contest completely changed his life and he would not have won it if he had given the moral of that story <laughs> Wow. Now that said, it's a tiny bit ambiguous, tiny bit ambiguous, Mara, but who cares because you had the experience of the story. I mean, it's a tiny ambiguous, a tiny bit ambiguous meaning, you know, like it, like any good story is, you know, it's not obvious what the story was about. Obviously he knew what he thought the story was about, but you could take it a couple of different ways, like most good stories. But that wasn't, that's not the point of storytelling. Like you say, it's the point of speechifying. When I try and struggle, like I did, it's like I asked you at the beginning of this interview to define storytelling, I end up with the fact that it's an experience. To deliver that experience, I just have to tell someone a story. And then they're like, oh, that's storytelling. Yeah, sometimes I, I say experience, sometimes I say journey, because it's that as well. And if your storyteller is a good guide, then you know where you're going, you're not lost, you're not anxious, you're not, you know, you're in, you know that you're in good hands, and you're taking the journey together with that person. And when, excuse me, when you take a journey together with somebody, you, unless they don't split the bill fairly, uh, you usually get to <laughs> by the end of it. Yeah, that's a very interesting statement, splitting the bill. How we split I, the bill in, on the journey. I think if I really 
am honest. There are certain when stories are really hard to listen to and don't feel healing. I'm thinking of, for example, the stories at the Truth and Reconciliation uh, hearings in South Africa. For example, you know, people got, after apartheid was over, people got the chance. They didn't want to incarcerate thousands of people and have to admire the new government and thousands of trials. Uh, They told people who, I'm sure it wasn't quite as simple as this, but for many people, if they would tell their stories in public, what they did and what happened to them, that they would be, uh, if not totally exonerated, and they would not need to be incarcerated. That's my understanding. And I think there are many stories that we hear that are painful. I mean, therapists hear painful stories all the time, and I'm sure you as an MD hear painful stories all the time. And I would hate to leave listeners with the thought that the only stories that count are those that ha- that, where the people live happily ever after, because that is certainly not the case in any way. Uh, but mm. there is, again, even with a painful story, there is a kind of a peace that comes at the end. There is a kind of a resolution there is a kind of a healing that happens, whether in the case of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it was the healing of a community that was so important. And I am sure that, although I haven't been involved with it, I'm sure the Marjorie Stone and Douglas uh, students uh, after the shooting had experienced, had an opportunity to tell their stories as well. You know, it's funny, the young woman I was talking about in my interview today, turns out, this is the third book she's going to be a part of. Uh, people really judge on this and uh, knowing that storytelling is just so useful for making sense of the horror that happened there. So I don't want anybody to think that it's only the happy stories that need to be told or that, uh, you know, the happy ending may not be in the course of the story, in the plot of the story. It may be for the listener or for the listener's culture, society. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very important to talk about story on all the different levels. And story as therapy doesn't always have a resolution. Sometimes you're in the middle of the story and you're telling it as a cathartic experience and and you as the audience are no longer just an audience enjoying a story, you are part of the therapeutic value of listening to a story. As opposed yeah. to the storytelling performer, you know, that's a, that's a completely artificial setting of I'm on a stage, I'm here to be of service to the audience. But in some therapy settings, the audience is there, like you said, healing a community. It's the audience is there as, uh, not, not as, you know, not to be entertained, but also as an active participant to be healed. Yeah, I was just going to say, the audience, there's not the same. We started off the conversation by talking about the connection and the identification between uh, uh, the communication between storyteller and the audience. And the audience needs to be a participant. It needs to be a conversation in some cases more than in others. Yeah. And mm. absolutely, I think the case, the point needs to be made again. A storyteller should not get on a stage with particularly with 
uh, um, people who they don't know, with strangers, should not get on a stage doing therapy. That is not art. That's something else. A storyteller, uh, uh, one great definition I heard once of art is that art is making order out of chaos. You know, you think about there are nine zillion colors of paint, let's say, in a, uh, in a paint uh, store. Uh, which ones are you going to choose? Art is about choice, making choices and making order. And uh, so when you're telling a story on a stage, theoretically you have worked through those therapeutic issues if you had any. Mm-hmm. And you have come to see this as, a, as an artist. You have come to step away from this, have a distance between you and the story. Whereas in a therapy session or in the truth and reconciliation sessions, that's something totally different. That there should not be a distance. If there is, that's a problem. You're not looking at this um, with an objective eye. You're looking at it as a sufferer. Hmm. And I think I love- I, I'm sorry. How- I was just saying I love how complex and multifaceted uh, this topic is. It's great. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I have seen storytellers, uh, not, not on a big stage, but in certain situations, weep when they tell a story, like in, like in guild meetings or something. And that shows that they are not ready to tell that story professionally yet because obviously you don't want your guide on the journey to be weeping. You want your guide to be in control. So the storyteller, mm-hmm. professional storyteller, one of the big differences between a professional and the non-professional is you really need to have worked through those issues. You, you want to feel the emotions. You don't want to be phoning it in. But you certainly don't want to be a burden or to be asking for support from the audience, from your listeners. Right. Yeah, the audience will feel uncomfortable having to take care of you. Exactly. And in a support group, that's a different thing. But a storytelling yeah. uh, uh, show is not a support group. Right. right. And, and for me, I appreciate having a guild to be able to work stories like that. I'll say, you mm-hmm. know, I haven't, this is the first time I'm telling it. Let me see how it goes. And to be able to see where the emotion hits me. Because it's, I, I find it really fascinating that I can think a story in my head, I can even write it down, and when I go to tell it, it's completely different. Like the emotional resonance comes out and, and something changes about a story, like you said, because it has an audience. <laughs> it's the conversation. And there, there's something else to it as well. Uh, I've taught a little bit of uh, performance studies classes, and uh, you know there are different uses of the term performance. I teach in a school of communication. So performance means something slightly different to uh, scholars of communication. Um, What it means is not just getting up on a stage, but one use of the term performance is anything that we do, you know, it's behavior. But another use of the term is something we do in front of others, right? So when you're alone, you're going to do things, and I don't want to know what they are, you're going to do things that I don't want to see you doing, right? That's, you're not performing. You're alone. You don't have any kind of mask on. You're not being trying to be somebody you're not when you're alone. If you were, you'd be schizophrenic, I believe. <laughs> you know, it's not a good thing. You're, you should be completely yourself when you're alone. 
but in front of anybody. I don't care if it's your best friend, your mother, your sibling, anybody, your spouse. You're going, you're, you, you put on a different persona, take on a different persona when you're with a different another person. And uh, there are different layers of that, levels of performance in life. Mm. So we perform tasks, but we also perform for an audience. Mm. Well, that's great. The different faces we have and we put on with performance. That's a whole other interesting side route. Oh. Well, you in know, Karen, theater, oh, they, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Take that off. Oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> in Greek theater, uh, in ancient Greeks, they wore masks often on stage. And that's the word persona, I, I believe, is related to the word mask. And it's, you know, who, who you are. And that's what, where storytelling came from, who you are at that moment. You're going to be different depending on the mask you wear. And uh, that is uh, storytelling came from, uh, I, I don't mean... Um, Nobody ever told a story between before ancient Greece. I don't mean that. I mean theater came out of that. Theater came out of mm. that tradition that was originally, you know, you had the chorus and you had the uh, narrators and you had, you know, uh, the mask was a very, very important part of early theater. And there's such a close connection between theater, performance, storytelling, performance, et cetera. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting for me how story and storytelling has morphed and uh, into this modern form of performance where uh, this avant uh, this lost art sort of you know resurgence within the avant-garde kind of art and has now become popularized like you said with the moth and other organizations like StoryCorps who are telling personal stories. I would suggest that it was never lost. Hmm. You know, I, I, would, yeah. I, I don't think it was, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how I would say lost, but I would say that it, in, in an age of technology and data, story was not praised. Just like you said, the STEM curriculum has been you know, mm-hmm. put at the top. I, I, I do feel that it definitely wasn't lost because we still have it, but but it definitely was not celebrated. And yeah, uh, in this country, in in this country, and it was not commercialized. What the moth mm-hmm. helped do commercialize it, com- commodify it, uh, and there have been different renaissances. I mean, the National Storytelling Network helped, and the uh, and and uh, before that, National Storytelling Association and the the uh, National Storytelling Festival helped with that renaissance of storytelling in the 70s. Before that, there was, there was a big uh, renaissance of storytelling in libraries at the turn of the, the 20th century. I think people have already always done it, but I think it may not have been in the mass consciousness the way it is today. I just hesitate mm-hmm. to say lost only because we think because it wasn't on people, not that you're saying this, but that you know it wasn't on People magazine. Or there wasn't an app for it, so it was lost. And it was always being done. No, I agree. I, I like that. It was never lost. It was just, I, I'm, I'm, I like that it, it just wasn't celebrated, and I, I'm glad that we're celebrating it now. Absolutely. <laughs> and, 
And uh, I, I'm also glad that someone else is out there uh, taking it to young people because I think that, um, that that's the only way that, you know, bringing it from the crevices where we've kept it and, and the resurgences and the re- places where it's come back to life, that we can bring it back into the mainstream with uh, through education, through giving people the experience of what storytelling is. So I'm glad you're still in schools teaching, and I'm glad to start doing it too. So it's, it's going to be a, uh, a great new year of stories. And people are always telling stories in their families. They're always telling stories at work. They never stopped doing that. It's always been, and I, I think, I don't mean to, to harp on this, but I think it's really important to recognize it's always been here. Uh, it's not like nobody told family stories and suddenly because somebody's looking at them and doing studies of them, you know, and writing books about them that now they're doing them. Do you, do you see what I mean? So your word celebrating is perfect because it's always been done. Nobody took it. Nobody thought that it was important to tell stories in libraries to kids or grandparents telling their stories or women sitting around quilting and telling their stories. Nobody celebrated it, but it was not a lost art. It was always been done. It's, 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 it is what it is to be human. That is a... a uh, the great uh, communication scholar Walter Fisher said that uh, one of the most important characteristics of a human being that separates us from other animals is our ability to see life as an overarching story and as a set of small stories. And we've always done that and we'll never stop doing that. It just hasn't been as commodified as it is now. Oh, well, thank you. And, uh, on that topic of that huge topic of storytelling as medicine, do you think there's any, is there any area that we haven't touched just to kind of mention it? Cause it's so, so vastly interesting. Um, I think we've done okay. And I, I've uh, <laughs> talked your ear off for, I mean, yes, we could go on for hours. You know, you, you already know me enough to know I could go on for hours and I, <laughs> but I, I really think we've covered uh, good stuff all, all along and I appreciate what you're doing very, very much. I think it's so important uh, to to get, because as you say, it wasn't celebrated. I think it's very important to get people to understand that what they've already been doing, what their grandparents have been doing, has meaning. It isn't just, oh, that's garbage, that's just storytelling. You know, that, that, this, isn't some, that this is something to respect and to uh, promote and to inculcate in schools and business and hospitals and everywhere else. Well, thank you again, Karen, for joining me on the call today for the interview. For everyone out there, it's Karen Neal, uh, C-A-R-E-N-N-E-I-L-E. And where can they find you, Karen, online? Well, they can find me, I guess, KarenNeal.com would be a good place, but also the public storyteller that is wlrn dot org slash programs slash public hyphen storyteller uh, is the address i i really appreciate the opportunity to speak to people on uh, via podcast i think it's so important oh no thank you for joining me and i really i'm happy that other people out there spreading the message of storytelling and storytelling is medicine. And so I 
decided to end this by telling everyone out there to take your medicine. So take your medicine as uh, storytelling as medicine. Thank you, everyone, for joining me on the call for people of passion and purpose, doing interesting things, living the present moment. Again, I'm Dr. Joel Ying, and stay tuned for more from livingthepresentmoment.com.